I guess me being a bigger guy, people were just kind of like, well, yeah, you know, you put a lot of air through the horn and this and that. I'm just like, I'm now finding out that it's really not necessary to kill yourself to play in those registers, you know, the extreme upper register. It's all about how you use the air and the compression that you use. And I mean, there are guys that are, you know, toothpicks compared to me that are playing like that. And I'm just like, man, so there has to be something to this. And I've been just practicing that lately and it's really paying dividends. So this episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Guru Saying Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Rashawn Ross. Rashawn, well, he's an interesting dichotomy. As a member of the Dave Matthews Band, Rashawn regularly plays in front of thousands of fans. But at heart, he's a quiet soul. Rashawn is noted for his amazing high chops, effortlessly soaring well above double C, yet he doesn't consider himself a lead player. And while his talents make him legendary, his island roots keep him humble. So pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin. And welcome to uh, the first edition of the Trumpet Guru's Hang for 2022. That's right. It's a new year. And uh, I am uh, joined by the world famous Rashawn Ross. Rashawn, thank you so much for joining me today, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me, Jose. Hey, you know, it's, uh, it's been a minute. I think I met you uh, just briefly at ITG in Anaheim a few years ago. Yeah, uh, yeah you kind of popped in and, and uh, so we kind of hung for, for a quick minute. But, uh, you know, been a, a, a big fan of, of your work, you know, really been inspired by you not only as a player band, but, but just, just your humility. I mean, you're just, just one of those cats that, that uh, I have never met anyone who had anything negative to say about you other than the fact that you can just blow everybody out, off the, the stage, you know? So <laughs> no, man, it, it's all good. You know, you just, uh, you know, it's one of those dudes that, uh, you know, I, I definitely am going to enjoy getting to know a little bit better. So, um, you know, let, let's just kind of, you know, just dive into stuff a little bit and, um, you know, you, you, you're kind of, you, you've had a really interesting uh, career trajectory uh, from your time in the Virgin Islands up to, you know, the stuff you're doing now with, with Dave Matthews, Dave Matthews band and, and, you know, your other projects that you have going on. Um, it, was there ever a point when, when you just kind of stopped and thought, is this really what I'm doing? You know, I, I, how, how can I be doing all of this stuff? Is this, is, you know, how did this happen to me? Yeah. I mean, I ask myself that every day, like I'm, 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 sometimes shocked that I'm making a living playing the trumpet and I, I you know I, I never thought that uh you know all the good things that have happened in my life and career would be happening right now I'm, I'm actually genuinely shocked that I get to do this for a living because I'm just having so much fun yeah well you know and I think that's that's the key to it you know that um, you know, they, they say, you know, when, when you do what you love for a living, you know, you never work a day in your life. And, 
you know, there's always the hustle. There's always the grind. And I think when it's important to be able to uh, to take the the hardships, the difficulties that we have to go through, whether it be in honing our craft or just the day to day stuff that you got to do, you know, the travel, the you know, the, the the stuff. So, I mean, how do how do you or how have you effectively managed that, you know, throughout your your life, you know, dealing with the difficulties and, and maintaining that that positive attitude? Well, I mean, I think mostly it's just something that I look at in terms of, I guess, what else am I going to do? Like, I, you know, I often ask myself this, like, well, if you weren't doing this, what else were you going to do? And I, I honestly still haven't answered that question <laughs> successfully yet. So it's just one of those things, like, when things get tough or, you know, I'm, like, stressed out because there's just so many things happening and I'm just kind of like, man you're just so fortunate to be able to pick up a piece of tubing and play it for a living. So, you know, like things can't be that bad. You get to do this for a living. So, I mean, it's just, I've just come to accept that that's what it's going to be. I mean, whether it's the travel schedule or whether it's just having so many projects on the table that I'm just like, oh man, I don't know how I'm gonna get through this. Plus, you know, there's, life, you know, personal life and family and all that stuff. So, you know, to manage it, I just try to stay positive and I always tend to, like, I, I'm a serious introvert. So, like, I just tend to take a lot of time to myself and, you know, I get into that headspace where it's just kind of like, okay, don't talk to me. I don't really want to hear anything right now. I just kind of need to focus on my mental well-being so I could get through the things that I need to get through. And, you know, just, I guess that has worked for me thus far. Yeah. Well, you know, that's an, and that's a real interesting thing you said about being an introvert because uh, I'm fundamentally an introvert as well. I mean, if I have to classify myself and I hate labeling because then it kind of boxes you in, right. but, but still my preference is to be an extra introvert. Right. But the nature of everything I do is the extrovert, you know, you know, Bingo. <laughs> you know, and um, like my, my wife is the opposite. My wife is an extrovert. And it's so funny because, you know, she, when she gets off work, she's a nurse. And when she gets off work, she wants to go out. She wants to be around people. She wants music. She wants dancing and stuff like that. And I'm just like, I, I want to stay home. You know? And that's where I get my energy. I get my energy from the quiet. Right. Um, but, it, and I think it's because, you know, when you're an introvert and you're on stage, you have to kind of turn it on. And mm -hmm. so you tap into that side of you that, that generally doesn't get used. And so you get tired really quick. So, I mean, how, how do you, how do you do that? How do you, you transition yourself from, you know, Rashawn, the, you know, the, the, the normal dude, the typical dude, and then Rashawn Ross, the performer. Man. And that's something, I think that is the biggest struggle that I have. You know, I mean, I, I think sometimes even my mother does not understand that part of it because you know at the end of the day like i have a job where people come to my job to have a good time and hang out and they don't understand that after all the hanging out and all the partying and all whatever 
is going to happen, I still have to get on stage and do a job. So it's really hard for people, even family. Like, like I said, my mother is like prime example. She just thinks it's just kind of like this thing will invite everybody, you know, the family's gonna be there. And I'm just kind of like, guys, like I have to get on stage. There's 15,000 people out Like I, I actually have to go do that. So I can't have, like, I can't just be a host you know, it, it's hard and it's so hard for people to understand that. So it's just kind of like, I tell people like I wake up with a certain amount of introvert coins a day and with every <laughs> interaction that I have, like I lose a coin and I'm just kind of like, all right, if I got five coins and I have to wake up and deal with, you know, family stuff and personal things that are going on and then I have to get to work where, I mean, this year has been extremely challenging. I mean, I'm so happy that we were able to make it through a tour, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, but we've had some guys, you know, contract COVID and my job is basically, I mean, I don't know of many other bands that would be able to pull it off without canceling shows, but we were able to do so. Thankfully, our keyboard player is an amazing drummer. So I had him switch to drums and the keyboard tech actually plays really good keyboards. So I was like, we'll get the tech on stage. And then we had to pull a bass player from an opening band. So it was just kind of like all that interaction, like me shuffling parts around to, you know, make a show happen so we don't have to cancel tour dates. You know, that stuff like it really takes a toll when you have to sit there and be like, okay, this bass player knows a few tunes. He's familiar with some of the stuff, but I got to get him focused, get him ready, you know, and we have less than 24 hours to do it, you know? So the keyboard player, now that he's playing drums, yes, he knows the tunes, but I still have to have like an eye and an ear on him and be cueing him. And it's just like, so when, a job entails all that, but you still have people that are like, you know, you know, like this person's here and this person wants to see you. And I'm just kind of like, guys, I need to put blinders on and just, you know, like I, I kind of have to do the job. And it's, it's kind of tough, you know, for me as an introvert to like shuffle all that stuff around and you don't want to make people feel bad. But at the end of the day, it's just like, I have a job to do. So trying to really pay attention to one, you know, just, just mental health in that environment and that kind of high stress, you know, really high stimulating environment is like, it's a challenge for me, you know? So like having like, that's where most of my energy goes and just trying to manage how I spend my introvert coins. And I have to say in full disclosure, like this was probably the most amazing tour I've ever had because of COVID because, you know, after right. the first week of the tour, because things were cool. And then we got to Florida and then of course someone tested somebody on our crew tested positive in Florida and then they were just like lock it down nobody backstage unless it's like immediate family and that was just like an introvert's dream come true 
you know so it was just yeah. like for me i was like oh my god i think we need to like make up another pandemic or try to find some other reason to keep people <laughs> from coming backstage because now i have time to actually deal with the things that i you know that i have to deal with in order to get ready mentally for for the job that i have to do playing a show so it's just kind of like one of those it's it's like a real kind of push and pull kind of struggle for me to kind of maintain that you know zen yeah. energy so that i could go and do the job well you know that that's that's interesting because um you know, you, you, on the one hand, you have to take care, you absolutely have to take care of yourself. You have to take care of yourself first, you know, uh, because I mean, one, you owe it to yourself. That's, you know, obviously. Uh, two, if you, you know, want to be able to put on the best performance possible, you know, then you need to be in the right space mentally. Um, but then it's, it's like you're saying, kind of balancing that because of the needs to be a little more extroverted, the need to put out that energy. Uh, and then, I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's kind of balancing the way that people perceive you. And it's it's like when you get in an introverted space and it's very easy for people to go, oh, you know, why is he so standoffish or why is he, you know, doing that? You know, and like my wife will get on me about that. She says, well, you know, you hardly talk to me at the party. I'm like, well, you know, that's okay. Cause you know, I'm sitting back, I'm enjoying myself. I'm, right. I like to observe people. Uh, and you know, it, it's, it's sometimes I have to catch myself with, when I'm in certain situations to make sure that I do kind of go a little bit beyond my comfort zone uh, so that I don't always, you know, uh, default so man it's so refreshing to hear somebody else say that because that's exactly me i go to a party i'm like i am like the fly on the wall dude standing back there with a drink i'm just kind of like observing everything and i don't necessarily do a lot of talking to people and i think one of the biggest misconceptions of introverts is just kind of like well you know they just don't speak it's just like I'm very comfortable speaking with people if I know you or, you know, we had common interests or whatever. Like, I mean, I can talk. My thing is like, I can't hold court. Like there are just people that I, like I go to parties with people that can hold court. Cause that way I don't have to do it. I can just sit back and just let them do all the talking, but I can talk to, I can talk to that person. I could talk to you. I could talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, but just like having a group of people around me and like doing that sort of, you know, entertaining, like I, that is way out of my comfort zone. So I just kind of, if I ever go to any social situations or go to any parties, I always try to go with an extrovert because then they can do yeah. all the talking and I could just stand back and witness it all. Yeah, go, go to a party with Chris Rock and then you have to say a word. You know? <laughs> Um, you know, and this is, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to kind of throw this out because, uh, this is my experience and, I, and like you're saying is it's refreshing when you talk to somebody about something that, that you, you try to process in your head to see if somebody else has the same experience. But for me, I find playing like the, the larger the stage I'm on and I, and by God, I don't play on any stages as large as you do, but when I'm playing in larger venues, I find that I zone in to myself 
so much more. I mean, obviously I'm listening to the band and things like that, but it's like when I'm, when I'm playing, playing to me is kind of like a meditation because I'm just so into the music that I, I don't allow myself to get distracted by the other people that are around me or the audience or things like that. It's just, I'm like in this, this zone, which is like an introvert's dream because you're just, you're just there. I mean, do, do you experience that too? All the time. And it's just like, man, it's going to sound, well, I don't think it's going to sound weird, but it's just kind of the idea of playing for smaller audiences terrify me. Yeah. Like, I, I'm just like, like I did horribly like in college when I had to do like the juries and all that stuff. Like I always did so horribly. And then I would go, you know, go out and I would play gigs and, you know, some of my professors would be there and they're just like, man, you didn't play like that in your jury. And I'm just like, man, cause I just got four people sitting at a desk, like basically looking at every, you know, every move I make and every note choice or whatever it is, just analyzing where, you know, for me, it's way easier for me to play on a stage playing to 15 to 40,000 people. And like, I am just, in a zone, I'm very in tune with what I'm doing, you know, in tune with my bandmates. And it's just like, that's just so much easier for me because I just kind of feel like the focus isn't on me. Yeah. So like, I'm, I just work better in that mental space, but it's just like that, that's so much easier than me playing to an intimate <laughs> room. I'm just like, oh my God, they're just listening to everything. I'm just like, oh, yeah, that terrifies me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I am absolutely the same way. Yeah. You know, playing for, for, if, if you put me in front of 10,000 people, uh, I'd be okay. Uh, you put me in front of one person and I'm, I'm kind of freaking out. <laughs> yeah, I am terrified. I, I just, man, I don't know how I, I, I don't know how I get through playing studio sessions with Jerry Hay conducting, that's for sure. Well, <laughs> that, yeah, that is just a frightening thing, uh, yeah, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and actually, that, that's actually a good transition because, um, you know, I was talking to Jerry, uh, well, I've, I've talked to him a few times uh, on, on the show and, and, and outside of that. And, you know, he is, your name has come up. I mean, pretty much any time I talk to, to Jerry, your name does come up. Um, and, uh, certainly he, he has a uh, respect for you. I mean, you don't get on a Jerry Hay session if, if, uh, he doesn't have a level of, of confidence in you, uh, not only as a player, but as a person. So, um, you know, the, the thing that struck me about Jerry, when he, when he first told me about you is like, yeah, Rashawn, you know, want to talk to me about some playing things. I'm like, dude, man, man, Rashawn's got it going on. You know, why is he, why, why is he checking in with you? But it's, it seems as part of your character, that you are kind of the eternal student that you're always kind of uh, trying to keep your eyes and ears open for some some concepts that, that they're going to make you know it's going to make your playing that much better so um you know what are some of the the things that you got from jerry and and uh you know let's kind of get into that that mindset of, of rashawn the the trumpet student well i mean i kind of think that um you know coming from mostly a background of performing live. You know, I mean, I, I've been playing professionally since I'm 13 or 14, like on the road, 13 or 14. Yeah, and I have recorded in studios and, 
you know, going to Berkeley and all that stuff and living on the East Coast and, you know, living in New York and then moving to Miami. Going to L.A., I mean, of course, everybody that plays trumpet that listened to any pop music, you know, 70s and 80s, 90s, know who Jerry Hay is. So it's just like that was the first thing that I thought that I should do upon moving to L.A. And I did that, sought out Gary Grant as well. And it was just the fact that I thought that I needed to check in with these guys so that I could, I guess, hear it from the guys that did it exactly, you know, what is expected of a studio trumpet player, you know, and that promptly <laughs> gave me a whole lot of work to do <laughs> after checking in with Jerry. And it's just kind of like, he's like, yeah, you know, he's like, you got to work, you know, your sound and, you know, all these different things. And cause just listening to those guys and he would start sending me some of his old demo tapes with the horns isolating. I'm just like, this is incredibly in tune. This, you know, the sound that you and Gary or you, Gary and Chuck are getting together is just like mind blowing. Yeah. I don't hear trumpets like that. And, you know, I'd never played in sections with guys like that before. You know, I'd done a lot of section playing, but I'd done section playing in Calypso bands and stuff like that in the Virgin Islands growing up. But I just kind of wanted to check in with those guys and be like, okay, what is it that a Jerry Hay looks for when you're listening to trumpet players? And he was just like, well, here's Sergei Nikaryakov. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh God. Yeah, please. You know, and he's just like, and here's Michael Sachs, and he's just like, I'm looking for that sound. You know, th there's a sound that I'm looking for. So immediately it was just all about me working on my sound and, you know, being able to play in a situation with other trumpet players being able to match. Because to that point, before meeting Jerry, I had played in sections and stuff like that, but not at that level. So... I just wanted to know from those guys, like, what did you work on? How did you work on these things? And, you know, I just always checked in with them and always pretty much was just always a student. Anybody that I could find that I liked a certain aspect of their playing or their playing just in general, I would try to sort, you know, j just search those people out and just try to have a lesson with them, sit with them pick their brains about certain things and like I just stay like I've always been that way and I, I will continue to be that way because there are just so many trumpet players that I've yet to discover and some that are newly discovered that I'm just kind of like man I wonder what that guy is doing I want to hang out with him and see what's going on so there's, it's just always been that inquisitive nature that I've always you know would love to have be a part of myself and my being, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think as we, as we continue to travel through life and, and grow into uh, the person the, that we're destined to be, 
that there are so many lessons that, uh, you know, you learn through experience and you have two ways of learning through, through experience, either your own experiences or through the experiences of others. And uh, so I, I think that, you know, especially when you aspire for, um, and I'm going to use this term loosely, greatness, uh, because a lot of times when you say great, you know, people, you know, it, it gets into an ego thing. And, and that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about maximizing the gifts that you have of, of living life to, to the, the fullest potential that, that you're capable of. When we're searching for greatness, the best experiences that you can get are to sit with the great, the people that have done the things that, that you want to do or, or have the attributes that, that you want to, to gain for yourself, you know, learn through their experiences. So, you know, you, you're able to travel in those circles and that's, you know, and that's part of the reason we do this, that I do this podcast is because not everybody has the opportunity to sit down with a Jerry Hay or, or Rashawn Ross or uh, Wayne Bergeron or, you know, any, any of the, the great people I've had on this, this podcast. And it's a, a chance to get to know what they're doing and how they're approaching, not just a trumpet, but approaching life. Uh -huh. Because, you know, if, if you're only approaching the trumpet with this mindset, then you're, you're not going to really be able to be that great person. You know, it's, it's when the, it's about who you are as a person, when, when that drives your motivations and drives the way you approach the horn. And that's when you start to, to take it to a different level. Um, so, you know, when you're talking about like growing up in the islands, um, you know, I, there, there's, of all the musicians that I've met, you know, the ones that are from the islands, they just have a very specific kind of vibe. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of, uh, yeah, I'm sure that, yeah, everywhere there are people going to be all over the, all the board in terms of, of their, their mindsets and stuff. But like all the cats I've talked to from the islands just kind of have this, this really down to earth, um, grateful vibe. And, you know, just like, yeah, man, you know, it's, you know, life is good. And, and, you know, I, I'm blessed to be able to do this, like you're saying earlier, uh, it's that humility, but also that, that joy uh, in living. So, um, I mean, is that something that, that is a fairly uh, accurate observation on uh, the music scene in the Virgin Islands? Absolutely. You know, I, I mean, it's just, I mean, historically, especially, you know, I could speak for the Virgin Islands because that's where I'm from. Like, there are not a lot of professional musicians that only play music for a living. You know, when I grew up and I was playing in all these bands, it was comprised of guys that were school teachers in, in the day, or they worked for the government, or they worked in the Department of Public Works and, you know, the Department of Health, and, you know, but they were musicians. And, you know, we play every weekend. So, you know, they were kind of like the weekend warrior kind of things, but those were the guys that taught me about arranging and, and, and exposed me to earth, wind and fire. And, you know, you know, and through them, Jerry Hay and all that stuff. So, you know, I said, I think I posted something on Instagram last week where I was just kind of like, I was walking by my old elementary school and I'm just like, man, I started playing trumpet in a little building that's as big as a shack, you know, I'm just like, you know, so coming from that and knowing all the guys that inspired me, they weren't, you know, professional musicians. That's not all they did as a living, but they were enough to inspire something in me to want to strive for that. And 
sitting in the position that I'm in now, I'm just like, you know, it, it just is nothing but gratitude, you know, because I didn't have guys that were professional musicians that only played music for a living that I could look to and say, that's what I want to do. I had guys that played music on the weekends and they gave me a shot and my mother was just kind of like, okay, guys, he's 14. If you're going to be going on the road, like you're going to be responsible for him. He get, you have to make sure that he gets his schoolwork done. If his grades start slipping, he's not going to be able to play in this band anymore. He's not going to be able to travel. And those guys really saw something in me that they really took it seriously and they were just kind of like, hey man, your grades are slipping. You know, we got all these gigs coming up. If your grades start slipping, you know, what are we gonna tell your mother? And your mother's not gonna let you play in the band anymore. So like they were very serious about me taking care of business. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So with that, I mean, and I couldn't be more grateful to them because, you know, that showed me that one, they cared about me and they saw something in me. And it's kind of crazy because I'm just kind of like, man, like, it's like, I really want to do this for a living. I don't want to go work a day job and then, you know, play music on the weekends. Like, I want to play music all the time because I love this so much. So those guys were enough to inspire me. And like I told people, it's like, we didn't like coming from the Virgin Islands, we didn't have the luxury of students that were from New York City. Like I didn't have the luxury of driving or taking the subway to Birdland to go see, you know, Wenton Marcellus, you know, taking the subway to Lincoln Center. Like I didn't have that luxury. Like students from the Virgin Islands didn't have the luxury of seeing an Arturo Sandoval or seeing, you know, McCoy Tyner or all these great great musicians. We didn't have that as a role model. Like I didn't know that it was possible to just be a musician. And like in our culture, it's expected that you're going to go to college and you're going to come back home and you're going to join the workforce. So being a professional musician was not something that people really encouraged because it was just kind of like, oh, well, you need something to fall back on, or you need to do this, or you need to make sure you get a day job. So like, that was the kind of thing that I was growing up with that also pushed me even harder. And it was just like, you know, I'm going to prove all of y'all wrong. And the guys that, you know, my mother left me in care of were very instrumental in making me believe that that was possible. Although they had not done that for themselves, they were just like, you can go on and you can do whatever you want to do. If you want to play music for a living, you know, that's available to you. You just got to handle your business. So, you know, so everything to go back to your original sentiment was just like, yes, coming from the island, it's just like this grateful, grateful, vibe that I have because it's just like we didn't know coming from our culture that what I'm currently doing was available to us. So now that, you know, 
that's happening and we're living that it's just like i am just truly grateful to just be able to blow through a piece of tubing and be able to take care of my family you know yeah 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 that's i think sometimes we just we we tend to take it for granted you know that that uh you, know, you can actually make a living doing that and, and even if you don't you know for for the people out there that that are like me that, that aren't full-time professionals um if you always approach from a place of joy and gratitude that you know you you get to do something that you love uh and that that people appreciate and then you know it it takes a lot of the pressure off right. i think so um so it, in your position with with uh, Dave Matthews Band right now, it, it sounds like uh, you're you're more in an MD position now. Yeah, we like to loosely call 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 it that. <laughs> <laughs> loosely call it that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just you know one of those things where like I I was brought into the band by the original saxophonist Leroy Moore, who you know is. Deceased, and uh, but he, but he brought me in because I guess he just got tired being the only horn player, and he was just kind of like, "Man, I'm just bored. Like all I do is I come out and I play a solo, and I go stand on the side." He's like, "We could be doing so much more if we just had like a section," and you know, once that all happened, and he went to Dave, and Dave was just kind of like all right, well, if that's what you want, let's do it. And, you know, quickly Dave was just converted into like, oh, he's like, now I can't do without that, you know, because it's just so, so much other music coming from that side of the stage other than just playing solos. You know, we had parts and we would make up background, you know, background parts behind various soloists and he was just like man that is awesome and he was just like just promised me one thing that you're not going to play the same thing every night and i was just like oh great that's kind of what i like to do like i like to make up stuff on the fly and you know and he was just like just keep it evolving and we're good so yeah you know that was basically the you know the nucleus of you know the the section that Roy wanted to create. And because of that, I mean, because I played in bands for so long, from 13 years old, we didn't have charts. So everything was all by memory. And you had one, maybe two gigs to get it. And they would send you the cassette <laughs> and be like, all right. You get the cassette on a Wednesday and the gig is Saturday. And, you know, they didn't want music stands on stage. So for me, this was kind of like a tailor-made, you know, a tailor-made situation for me because I had a really good ear. Like I hear something once, maybe twice, and I'm good. So. Roy also had an amazing ear. So we would just come up with stuff like that. And, you know, when he went down with his injury, we had to get, I mean, he went down the night before a gig. I remember we were playing in North Carolina somewhere and 
he went home, he just bought a new ranch or something, and he went home and was surveying his property and hit a ditch with an ATV, and the ATV fell on top of him, broke some ribs, and he was in really bad shape. And once we got the news, the next day was a show. So management calls me up, and they're just like, what are we going to do? And I was just like, get me a saxophone player. Got to be able to read. Got to have good ears. Have Dave write a set list. And just let me focus on the songs that we're going to play tomorrow night, and I'll pull it together. No problem. So I spent all that time writing out charts. And the next day, Jeff Coffin from Bela Fleck and the Flecktones showed up and we just went to work, man, you know, and they were just like, are you sure you're going to be able to pull this off? I'm just like, everything's going to be fine. Just, you know, because at that point, because I just remember, I kind of have like this crazy musical memory where I just remember everybody's parts so I could sing everybody their parts and whatnot. So standing next to Roy for three years, like I knew all the saxophone parts, so I didn't even really need the recording. I could just write it down. And I wrote all those charts out, <clears throat> wrote all those charts out. And I sent Jeff some of the charts so he could start writing himself. And we got together maybe around 10 a.m. that morning and got it together. And, you know, the tour went on. So it was just kind of crazy. You know, that was 2000. Eight, I want to say, six, eight, two thousand eight. I think it was, but um, you know, after that, you know, the, the, there was there was a saxophone book, <laughs> and it's just kind of crazy that we had to go through the same thing just this year because of the pandemic. Is then Jeff the night before we're doing two sold out nights at Madison Square Garden, test positive for COVID, and I had to pull another saxophone player in and pretty much do the same thing. And everybody was just like, yeah, but you should have a book. And it was just like, yeah, we also have two rigs. We have an A rig and a B rig. And the charts were in the B rig somewhere in Virginia and we were in New York City. So again, I had to have Dave write a set list. And then Sibelius, because I got a new computer, decided not to work. So I had to write it all out by hand again. Nice. But, you know, again, it's just kind of one of those things where it's just like, I just remember all the parts and, you know, the same thing when our bass player and drummer tested positive the weekend that we did, you know, the Gorge in Washington State, wrote some stuff out, bass parts and stuff. So it's just one of those things where I guess that responsibility has just... You know, I just took it upon myself. So, no, and you have the skill set for it. So, yeah, yeah that that's awesome. Um, and, and there was something interesting you said. Uh, yeah, because I've read about this before. That you have a a rig, a rig and a B rig, mm -hmm. um, which you know makes a lot of sense when you're touring as much as you do. Um, but like in terms of equipment, um. I know that that uh, you know equipment is designed to be fairly consistent across the board. You know, you would hope that if you you pick up this horn and then you pick up the same model of that horn, it's going to play the same. But it doesn't always work out that way. Well, of course not. <laughs> so, um, 
I, how, when, when you were doing your, when you were creating your rig, you know, um, did you have to play test like a lot of different horns and a lot of different setups to find two that matched really well? No, 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 I didn't really have to do that. Cause I mean, I had the models that, that I wanted to play. I just picked the two best horns and I was just like, okay, I like these two B flats and I got those, you know, I got two flugels and two bass trumpets. So one flugel and bass trumpet stays on the A rig. The other flugel and trumpet stays on the B rig. I always keep the two B flats with me just in case. So yeah, I mean, it was like, I got pretty, two pretty darn good horns from, from Bach in terms of the B flats, you know, the flugels, I don't play a ton of flugel. I play some solos on flugel. So that's fine. No problem. It's just that the B flats were my main concern and, but I didn't have to like try 50 of them to get like the best two, like I just had him pull, I think maybe it was out of six horns. I played all six and I was just like, I like that one. I like that one. I'll take those two. Yeah. Good deal. All right. Well, and, and speaking of which, uh, you, you, uh, you're kind of becoming the, the face of the new line of Bach uh, commercial horns. Uh, you know, that, that seems to be going well. And uh, so what, what's, what's the, yeah. Cause I'm seeing a lot of guys are, that are, that are, uh, Hopping on board with that, uh, Melvin Jones, uh, mm-hmm. one of the, you know, uh, another another brother from the from the islands, um, you know, it, I, I've seen over the past few years Bach making an effort to really push that commercial uh, application uh, and designing designing the horns uh, for you know for for the the more commercial players opposed to you know the thirty seventh great horns. I mean, yeah, you know, everybody's playing for years, but but there are certain needs and desires that you have as a commercial player. So, you know, what, have you been part of the process on that? You know, the thing, the thing is, we really weren't looking at things in that light where it was just like, we need a commercial horn. Cause I think they released like a commercial horn a few years back, maybe about eight or nine years ago. Yeah. And it wasn't my favorite, like, I can't play lightweight horns because I just like lightweight horns just break apart on me. Like I need something solid. So the thing was when we were saying we're going to revamp everything with this new line, the first thing that I said, I was just like, what we can't do is call it a commercial horn. Because I was just like, you have a commercial horn. It's called the 37. Jerry Hayes been playing it for, I mean, he made his bones playing on 37s. Right. Gary Grant plays 43s. So it's just like, you, and you can't tell me that Jerry Hayes and Gary Grant aren't commercial. So I was like, that is the sound that you should be going for. Now, the thing is, I think with the commercial horn that, they released i think that was kind of coming from more of like a big band like lead perspective which you know i I 
try to tell people and people were just like, yeah, you know, we got this big band. I want you to play lead. I'm just like, man, I'm not a lead player. Like, I don't like, I was like having range and being a lead player are two completely different things. And I know enough to know that I am not a lead player. Danny Falcone is a lead player, you know, like that, like I would play six trumpet if Danny Falcone is playing lead. Like he's like just so ridiculous, you know? So it's just kind of like, I just said, we just need horns that guys could go and pick up and go play in an orchestra or guys can go pick up, go play a jazz quintet gig or quartet gig, or they could go play, you know, a concerto on it. Like that is what we need to do. So that's kind of what we set out to do. And I think, man, I think they, they nailed it, you know, and it's, it's just a matter of, you know, really going back to the, the true essence. And it's just like going through all this stuff with, you know, the Vincent Box original drawings for lead pipes and bells and all that stuff. It's just like all of that stuff is right there. And they're just, they're things that they found in his drawings that they've yet to even make. And I'm just like, what are we waiting for? Let's make this stuff. Let's, yeah. you know, make it, send it out, you know, send it to me. I'll say, okay, here's what's good or whatever. And, you know, you know, we got uh, Sean Jones to, to, to come aboard now. So it's just like those prototypes that I started posting about, you know, almost a year ago now, you know, those like i took one home and you know i think like the brass over there was kind of freaking out because they never let unfinished horns out of the factory before and i was like yeah you guys are gonna have to change that because yeah. that's what research and development is why would you play the horn to then have the artist say i don't really like this and then then you got to strip the plating and you got to do all this other stuff send the horns out raw We'll play test them that way, and then we can make adjustments as we see fit. So, you know, that was always our intent was to get these horns out to people that are playing all these vastly different styles. You know, I'm playing more commercial music. Sean Jones is playing more jazz, you know, stuff. Melvin Jones is also playing, you know, a lot more commercial section stuff as well. And, you know, Michael Sachs, of course, is one of the baddest trumpet players on the planet. And if all of us could be in agreement that this works, we've got something. So that's pretty much what we've been doing and just kind of just trying to fix everything that, you know, we saw at, as things that needed improvement because when you, like you said, you want to go into a store, you want to be able to pick up a horn and be like, okay, my horn got damaged. I could run to the store, get another one. And it plays almost the same. So that's kind of what we've been working on. And it's just kind of like just having that playability as well as the sound that we're so used to, you know, the opulence of the sound that we associate with Bach which guys like Jerry Hay and Gary Grant ha has made, has just seared into our minds. It's just like, if we could have that playability combined with this sound, 
we've got something. Yeah. And I think they they really did a great job. Andy Lott and Gavin and Mark Doolin and the team over there has been really doing some great work. Oh, cool. Well, we're definitely going to talk about equipment uh, a little bit later on in this episode. Uh, but um, the one thing that that kind of struck me when you're talking about it, you know, saying that, you know, going back to those original drawings of Vincent Bach, I mean, Bach has been the standard in so many ways for, you know, as long as I can remember and, and before me. Um, and there's a reason for that. And uh, even though I could never really play Bach horns or Bach mouthpieces, I just never, they never jived with me. Um, you know, the, the fact that so many great players have produced so much great music on that gear says something about it. But I think that the thing that's important is that, you know, the sometimes, yes, the, the sometimes, you know, that we have to go back to the original, you know, mm -hmm. everything that's old is new again. Uh, so yeah. it's like we make all these, these changes and these innovations and things like that. And sometimes that makes things worse. So you, when, when it's not working, it's just go back to the basics, right, go back right. to those fundamentals. And it, you know, uh, combining his design genius with modern technology and, you know, modern metallurgy and things like that. And under, you know, our understanding and our ability to, to use CNC processes and things like that to get more consistency. I mean, that's the key. I mean, because... I know that that's that's why so many guys, you know, you, you go into their their horn collection and and they maybe have one or two new horns, but then the rest of them are like, you know, old Martin committees or you yep. know, old, yeah, it's because vintage vintage stuff, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it, that stuff was inconsistent as as all get out, but you know, when you found the right ones, I mean, there's yep. nothing like them. So, yep. you know, when you're talking about like you know that you need you need a heavier horn, you you can't play play a light horn. Um, uh, you're, because, I mean, you're, you're, you're a big guy, you know, you, you have, uh, in stature and, you know, also like, you know, your, your facial structure and things like that. Um, do you feel like your, um, uh, your ability to, to utilize your body for, for compression, uh, is, you know, like, you know, that, that when you play that you need that, that larger framework to kind of be able to, to hold you in so that you don't overpower the instrument. Not necessarily. I mean, because, you know, all the things that I'm, you know, looking at and working on now has absolutely nothing to do with that. It's just you know, like Jerry always says, you know, the sound starts up here, you know, it starts in your mind, you have to imagine what you want the sound coming out of your bell to sound like. And the thing that I think, you know, like you, you talked about Larry and his system, because he, you know, and I recently got introduced to the uh, Stevens Costello method by I think possibly the best trumpet player that I've ever had the pleasure of hearing live and hanging out with. And it's this guy, uh, Gerardo Rodriguez, plays lead for Mark Anthony. Oh, okay. And I've never heard anything like it. Like, I mean, I sat there for a 90 minute concert and this dude didn't miss nick chip one note 
all his solos were imaginative and just, I mean, his sound just never, ever changed. And I was just like, man, how are you? So they came out and he came to town and I was just like, you know, we'd been friends on social media and I was just like, man, I want to come check out your show. And, you know, if you have time, I'd like, you know, I'd love to take you for, you know, a meal or something and just sit down and, you know, talk trumpet. And he was all but happy. I mean, he was just so happy to do it. So we went out, we got some breakfast and, you know, he was telling me about the Stevens Costello thing. And he was just like, man, like, that's the best thing that my teacher introduced me to. So I started to, immediately. I just went and I got the book and, you know, the videos and all that stuff to start really, you know, trying to dive into that stuff. Because the one thing that it really stresses is like efficiency. And I've never seen anyone play as efficient with so much power as Gerardo does. I was truly, truly astonished by how he just, like, I couldn't believe it. And he was just like, yeah, man, it's that Stevens Costello stuff. And that's how I got, I started going down that rabbit hole and that's, you know, I ran into, you know, Larry and, and I'm just like, okay, there has to be something to this because all these guys have huge sounds and like, they just seem to have like unlimited range. I want to know what's going on there. And I just really been practicing that and practicing that way. So I thought that, you know, of course, I guess me being a bigger guy, people were just kind of like, well, yeah, you know, you put a lot of air through the horn and this and that. And I'm just like, I'm now finding out that it's really not necessary to kill yourself to play in those registers, you know, the extreme upper register. It's all about how you use the air and the compression that you use. And I mean, there are guys that are, you know, toothpicks compared to me that are playing like that. And I'm just like, man, so there has to be something to this. And I've been just practicing that lately and it's really paying dividends. So, well, yeah, I mean that, that whole idea about compression and, and, and I think it, where, where it occurs becomes the question, you know, it's the, is, is it, uh, is it occurring in your, your abdomen is it occurring in your chest is it occurring in your throat is it occurring in your chops is it because of the resistance, of the, you know, using a smaller bore horn. So like all these different people use those different mechanisms. Oh, absolutely. To, you know, to, to kind of create that balance mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and, and it's, it's kind of like, I, I like to use an analogy, like, you know, like a, a basketball, um, that, and you see this in a lot of, in, in pretty much every sport, but the music as well, that a lot of times the people that are the greats, I mean, like the goats, um, they can't explain to you why they're so good. They, <laughs> they can't, they, they can't tell you how to do certain things. It's just like, well, you, you take the ball and you, you, you look at the basket and you throw it in. Yeah, that's right. it. That's it. Um, but sometimes it, you know, it takes those people that have really had to dive in to figure stuff out. That's why you know, I really like the Stevens methods. I, I'm a real big fan of the uh, Reinhardt system mm -hmm. simply because of the, the analytical approach to, you know, 
the classifications of, you know, you know, if you're, if you have this body type, then this is probably what you should be doing. And, and it's right. different than what another person should do. So kind of like helping to, to, to diagnose uh, the potential problems and to find the most uh, efficient method to produce the maximum effort or maximum results in, a, in any given person. So yeah, the, the, I, I really dig that, that concept with the Stevens. Um, so with, with your playing, uh, you know, you're talking about sound um, and, you know, that efficiency, because, you know, th that, that book, you, you know, well, I don't want to say book since you said that so much of it is, is uh, off the cuff, uh, but, you know, the, your demands on, on, the, on the gig with, with Dave, um, you know, you, you've, got, you've got some blowing to do and you're going to be all over the horn. You're going to be in the, up, the extreme upper register. You're going to be in the lower register. Um, and, you know, trying to get the sound that you want to get uh, consistently and with the most ease so that you, you, you can get through all those gigs that you have to do. Um, you know, do you, do you rely, do you find yourself relying more on uh, the technology to, to help you through, uh, you know, using sound reinforcement, using monitors and things like that? Or do you kind of just tune that out and just, just go go with your own natural sound. Yeah, I kind of do a little bit of both. I, like I try not to rely on the technology too too much because we use in ear monitors and a lot of trumpet players. You know, I have a lot of guys reaching out to me asking. It's just like, well, what do you do? Like, how do you like the adjustment period? If you've come from playing floor monitors to putting the sound directly in your ear, like it just it can be an adjustment. <laughs> so, you know, I usually play with my ear because the drummer is on my right. So I play with that ear all the way and protect that hearing. But I play with my left partially out so I could hear the room and I could hear the saxophone player who's to my left. So, you know, but I've got it now where I could just play with both ears in, like if I'm doing like some TV stuff and the setup is different and there's, keyboards and guitar amps all around me I, i'm cool to play with both ears in because i know enough now how to play by feel and muscle memory so you know i mean i think mostly you know and i can't wait to try it out when we get back on the road because i mean i've only been checking out this Steven stuff since, you know, we got off the road in November, right before Thanksgiving. And it kind of validated some of the things that I've been doing already, like in terms of playing in the extreme upper register, like I'm not really forcing anything. I'm not using my stomach or my diaphragm or my chest or my, even my throat for compression. Everything that I use in terms of compression is in the oral cavity. And that was one of the things that when I was reading through this book, they were just like, oh yeah, you know, the compression is all created here. You're using the air that's already in there. And it was just kind of crazy because I was watching, you know, Larry's videos. And when he was doing his, you know, thing with the tube and his system with the pressure gauge, that's exactly what it is. That's exactly how I blow when I'm playing stuff like in the extreme upper register. So I was just like, okay. And that's just something that I just kind of figured out on my own. I didn't know that there was a method to it. It was just like, 
oh, I kind of figured out that I could do that thing and I could get these notes way beyond double high C and going up into the triples. I'm just like, oh, I could just do that thing. And I, it wasn't really a thing for me. And then people started, it was just like, man, like a lot of people can't do that. And I'm just like, really? Because I, I just kind of figured it out. And yeah, it is what it is. But now that, you know, like you said, like reading the actual, you know, analytical part of it where somebody actually breaks it down i'm just like oh okay makes sense but i'm always one of those people that has to experience things for myself in order to truly get it mm -hmm. you know so i could sit next to someone and just kind of look and see you know what are they doing what you know what are they doing with their embouchure how are they breathing and i i can copy that stuff and i could pretty much get it and I kind of blame the fact that I have like this musical schizophrenia or bipolar disorder because like I could, you know, <clears throat> because I have to do so many things in the Dave Matthews band setting, it's because I have to play, you know, we get, we got stuff, you know, material that runs the gamut from you know, earth, wind and fire type horn stuff to where I'm like really in the upper register a lot playing parts and really have to be on top of those parts to, you know, things in odd meters where I'm, I have to play more jazz oriented vocabulary. And those two sounds aren't necessarily, I don't process those two things the same way in my head. So I play that material you know, like the odd meter stuff where I'm going to be playing more, you know, jazz vocabulary differently. Like I play the trumpet differently when I play that versus when I'm playing like the earth, wind and fire type stuff. So I kind of have this problem every time I get off the road, I kind of have to <laughs> like train myself to like not just be like, whatever your next situation is, that's how you're going to approach the horn. So I have this musical schizophrenia when it comes to the trumpet and it's just kind of like, okay, great. You're going to be doing, you know, the Grammy house band. So it's just kind of like, I know what that's going to be. It's not going to be playing any solo type stuff where I'm going to have to play, you know, jazz vocabulary or anything like that. So, and I guess that just comes from me you know, going to, going to Berkeley, wanting to be, you know, a jazz player, moving to New York and realizing that none of the jazz players wanted to play any of the funk gigs. So I took all the funk gigs because that's kind of what I did in the Virgin Islands anyway. I played in sections. So that was great, but I play the trumpet completely different doing that than when I'm playing a quartet or quintet gig. You know, and it was just this weird time, like after getting out of Berkeley, I graduated in 2000 and that's when like the D'Angelo Voodoo album came out Yeah, and Roy Hargrove was on there. So that gave all the jazz trumpet players license to be like, oh, it's okay to play R&B and pop and do all these things. And immediately after that, all the, like there was a slew of artists that came out, you know, your Jill Scott's and Commons and all these people that everybody had horns you know so it was like great awesome so everybody was playing stuff but it was kind of like the 
what they call it, the Neo Soul mm-hmm. kind of thing. They put that yeah. label on it. And most of the, the jazz guys wanted to play that. But then, like, I got, you know, at that point, I got roped into, you know, the lettuces and the soul lives of the world. And that's like hard funk. That's oh yeah, like tower of power. Like you really have to play the horn. It's not nice, lush harmonies, cluster harmonies with, you know, two other horns. It's just like, you got to play these parts. So like, I just blame all that stuff for my musical schizophrenia. I like to call it because I just don't know what I'm going to do at a certain point. And it, I, on one hand, I hate it because I can't, like, I just want to be one thing, but I'm so grateful that I'm not because it's, you know, it given, you know, gave me the opportunity to do all these other things, which is truly where my passion is. Like, I just don't want to do the same thing over and over and over again because it just gets boring. And that's the one thing I could say that like Dave Matthews band provides is just like, we don't ever play the same set, (laughs) you know, like the songs, the catalog is just all over the place in terms of style. So it just never gets boring. And when you can put 20,000 people in a, you know, in a place and they can actually listen, listen to a bunch of musicians, just really, play whatever they want to play and people still enjoy it that's pretty good (laughs) yeah that that's uh that's darn good if you if you ask me um when you were you're talking about like um you know naturally figuring out the the approach that that you have for the extreme of a register um do you because you know this is this is something that that i you know you look at you can find people all over the place so you know i remember hearing people say well you know if you've got thick lips then you know you're never going to be able to play high you know look at look at this player look at this player they've got very thin lips then you like then you look at other people it's like hey you know they've got some 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 fleshy lips so um but um do you do you feel that like you 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 roll in more uh when you play or are you kind of just just uh uh you know the the big thing like the unfurling you know it's like all these different things that people talk about but no man i still haven't even gotten to that point with it yet because i think all the things that i that i've that i figured out were the things that i found in the the stevens costello method those were the things that i was doing and to even you know I'd always try to figure out because I, you know, I know some guys were upstreamers and some guys just, you know, Gary Grant would always tell me, you know, play it down the middle. And I'm just kind of like, okay, cool, play it down the middle. But then when I play certain things down the middle, when I get to that extreme upper register, didn't really work so well. Do it, you know, so it was just like all these trial and error things, you know, it's just kind of like, that's kind of what I had to go through, but like the Stevens method, I was just kind of like, man, okay, I'm not unfurling, but I think now more than I ever have, I think the upstreaming has sort of helped me 
connect some of my like smooth some of my breaks out so that's kind of where i'm at right now it's just kind of like oh okay i've already been doing you know these things for the extreme upper register and like i just had one of the craziest dilemmas because i could play everything you know from the bottom of the horn and like my break occurs right around you know like high g is fine high a flat is fine a is fine now like b flats like my break was between like my high a flat and my high b flat like that could feel like you know that half step could feel like 10 miles away yeah but now that i've been kind of doing this steven stuff it's brought it so much closer and i've never really been an upstream type of player and it's not that i'm doing that like exclusively but that has helped to bridge that gap and it's become more consistent because those three half steps were a nightmare for me and then after i passed the b flat b is fine c is fine and then c sharp and d were like non-existent but e's f's f sharps like triple g's everything up to triple c no problem so it was weird because i remember i was sitting with dan in danny falcone's living room and we were playing and he was like it's so weird that you could play all the stuff above you know the double d but you you you, you have problems slotting it and the c sharps and it's so crazy that now that i've been doing this steven stuff it's all come in like now it's kind of all connecting and it's just that little bit of manipulation in terms of and i hate saying manipulation but it's just that little adjustment of changing the way i direct the air to make those notes happen so it's just one of those things i just think it just happens different for everyone you know yeah there's no prescription that says you and everyone can do it this way just by doing this i think you really have to like go through your trial and error period to really find what works for you yeah well and and that's that's so crucial in, in trumpet and in life is uh you know there is no one one way you know, uh, and it's the validity. And I, I've talked about this with, with a few other people. It's the, um, you know, people are really quick to write off concepts. You know, so there are people like, ah, oh, the Stevens method is crap. Ah, oh, the, you know, Reinhardt method is bad or this, you know, it, you know it, because they don't understand it and or because it doesn't work for them. Right. But, you know, just like like we were talking about with, with Bach horns, I can't play Bach's. Just, yeah. They don't fit me. Uh, well, I haven't played the new horn, so I'm going to have to try that out. I I will give it a shot. I will give it a shot. But, you know, it's like there are certain things that, that work for me because of my physiology and, and my preferences and, you know, that don't work for other people. So, right. you know, if, if you're getting the results that you want uh, and you're able to get them consistently, then that's a valid method for you. And if 
more than one person can do it. If you've got 10 people or a dozen people or, you know, 20 people that can use it and get the same results. So that means that's a pretty valid method, you know? So yeah, you can't throw it away. And I, I think that the most important thing any of us can do is to keep an open mind when we're running across uh, concepts that are foreign to us mm -hmm. uh, and look for the lessons that we can learn from it. Uh, and especially for people who are like teachers, I think that uh, the the worst thing a teacher can do is to get married to uh, a dogmatic approach to pedagogy because, uh, you know, you're going to have, you know, if you're a successful teacher, you're going to have a lot of a lot of students and every one of them is going to be different and everyone's going to need a different explanation. Right. Very true. So, all right. Well, we've got a couple of segments that we need to get through before I can uh, let you go today. Uh, and because, man, I. I know we're both introverts, but I have a feeling we could talk for a long time because <laughs> we understand each other. Uh, but this this first segment is brought to us by our, our good friend, uh, Michael Barkley of Barkley Microphones, and it's called Sound Off. And um, this is, uh, I just want to ask you about your approach to uh, development of sound and, and particularly uh, the way that you approach playing, especially from that that commercial perspective, and uh, I really be, think it'd be interesting for people to hear, uh, you know, like your tips of of how to to approach either the practice or the performance uh, to get uh, the the right kind of trumpet sound for the job that you're doing. Well, I mean, I guess through uh, sitting with Jerry Hay and Gary Grant, you know. I think the sound, again, just starts, you know, with the imagination. But to get more technical with it, my barometer has always been, you know, the tried and true Bill Adam putting, the, you know, just setting the, the lead pipe into vibration. And when I get tired or when I get, you know, I feel that my sound isn't what I want it to be, the first thing I do is I pull my tuning slide out and I try to set, you know, that lead pipe into vibration. And that really just brings everything back into focus for me, you know? So once I pull that tuning slide out and I play that lead pipe and I could get that reedy, like that saxophone, like I remember Jerry telling me, he's like, you ever heard a saxophone player play just his mouthpiece on the neck without putting the, the neck into the horn? He's like, that's the sound that you're going for. So if it could sound like that, that's it. And I would go for that sound and I would put my tuning slide back in and immediately that sound just, just really focus. And, you know, it's just, I remember one of the very first times I took lessons with Jerry, you know, he had stopped playing because he had had the lymphoma and whatnot. And, you know, he just stopped playing. He didn't really play. And I remember going to the house and <laughs> his wife said, he actually picked up the horn and started practicing because he knew you were coming. And I think he hadn't played in about six years to that point. And I remember the first note he played hit me in the chest like a lead pipe. And I was just like, if that's what you sound like after not playing for six years, I got a lot of work to do. But, and he was just kind of like, that's because the sound is here. He's like, I'm always gonna have that sound 
ingrained. He's like, that's, you know, it starts here. I always imagine the sound, but he was just like, but to get that sound, here's what you need to do. And, you know, we went through the Bill Adam routine and I mean, I, he had me playing the lead pipe for maybe 30 minutes. And I'm just like, are we going to do anything else? Today? But he was just, you know, but I knew he was just kind of ingraining, you know, that sound that I needed to get from the lead pipe in order to get the resonant and opulent sound that he was looking for on the horn. So that in a nutshell is basically my, you know, approach to getting the quintessential trumpet sound. Cool. That's good stuff. I mean, I lead pipe playing is so easy in a way, but it's so <laughs> daggone difficult yeah. and it's so easy to forget. I mean, like, like most of our fundamentals, I think, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah okay. I, I know this was what got me there, but you know, yeah. you know, we, we want to go for something else, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. All right. Our next segment is uh, called geared up. It's brought to us by our good friends at venture mouthpieces where design technology and craftsmanship intersect. Uh, use the code TrumpetGurus21 to get 10% off your order for uh, a beautiful custom-made mouthpiece if you want it. And um, this is about uh, your approach to gear. We're already talking about the the, the new Bach, uh, which uh, people can check out. They're available in the stores uh, where you buy your, your fine trumpet gear. Um, but I guess I, what I what I'm interested in more hearing about is your your concept of uh, you know, the approach to finding the right gear, uh, and maybe you know some tips that you would give someone like you know, when you're if you're going to try out a new horn, uh, you're going to try out a new mouthpiece. What what are the kind of the things that uh, you look for as the litmus test of of what's going to be a good horn or, or mouthpiece situation for you? Well, I mean, I think you know again. It, it all depends on what you're doing, you know. I mean, for me, I, you know, I play in a lot of different situations. So for me, you know, in the Matthews Band situation, I'm playing a 72 bell because there are just so many things that I have to do that I think playing a 37 would limit me in terms of getting the expressiveness that I want, you know, in you know, on a certain song or whatever. I just kind of picked the horn that I could just kind of do the most things with. And that horn seems to be the 72 bell for me. Uh, you know, if I'm just playing in a, in a section, I'm just doing TV stuff. I'm cool with rolling with the 37 because I'm not going outside the box and doing anything. It's just like the response is right there. So, you know, it, it all depends. I mean, if you're just looking for a good down the middle horn, you know, it, it all depends on what your workload is. So in terms of picking a horn, picking a mouthpiece, you know, you want to find the horn that starts really quickly, like the response is immediate. You know, I think that's the first indicator that, okay, this horn responds really well. If there's a lag time between you know, when you put air through the horn and when the horn actually makes a sound, probably not the best horn to go with, you know, because the response isn't that good. So you want something that starts quickly and then you immediately want to test, you know, you play through the bugles. Well, not necessarily all the bugles. You play 
you know, a C in the staff, soft, and then you lean on it to see if the pitch goes up or down. If the pitch goes flat, you know, your open bugles are going to be out of tune. Like the, the pitch, if the pitch goes down or if it goes sharp, you know, you want to kind of really pay attention to that. So you play it really soft, hold a note really soft, and then play it really loud, as loud as you possibly can without obviously, you know, ups upsetting your, your embouchure. But you want to see how that horn is going to react at different uh, dynamic levels. And you do that with the first valve. You do that with the, the second valve, the first valve, and the third valve as well to see whether the pitch stays constant. Because if they start going sharp or flat, you know, you got, you're going to have some tuning issues. So I think that's the best way of going about picking a horn, but immediately, you know, you should know if a horn is good when you put air into it and it responds immediately, you know, in terms of mouthpieces, you know, everybody's different. So it's just, again, it's just your workload. You know, what kind of music are you going to be playing? Are you playing different styles of music? Are you going to be playing, you know, commercial music? Are you going to, cause I, I had a friend of mine contact me just this week and he's like, man, I'm playing in this Calypso band and I'm playing on a three C and at the end of the night, man, he's like, it's hard for me to keep stuff in tune cause I'm working so hard. I'm just kind of like, well, you probably need to get something with your same three rim and just get, you know, different depths to see, you know, what what kind of makes your workload, you know, a little easier at the end of the night. So it's, you know, it's a matter of personal preferences. I mean, we all can't be Jerry Hay playing all the stuff that he played on a 3C. So, you know, that, that, that stuff really, I mean, when I found out that he actually played a lot of that stuff on a 3C, I was gutted. I was like, oh my God, this, this can't be real. Yeah. So it's just one of those things, you know, depending on your workload, depending on the kind of music that you have to perform for, you know, the situations that you're in, whether you're a professional or a student. Mm -hmm. so. yeah. Well, I had to tell you, man, that, that uh, tip about uh, going through the, the, the valve combinations and, and testing the, the dynamic volume and, and intonation. That's the first time I've ever actually heard anybody say that. Uh, and that is a really, that is a really cool thing. So try that at home folks. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Awesome. All right. So final uh, segment is our Robinson's Remedy Rapid Fire Round, brought to us by Robinson's Remedy, Rapid Fire Relief for your sore and tired chops. Series of questions all over the place. Uh, Rashawn, if you're ready, I just need your fastest response. Ooh, Let's get going. Best. All right. Here we go. First question. Who's the biggest response? Oh, okay. So let's try that again. Who's the biggest influence in your life that is not a trumpet player? Uh, it'll be my father. Okay. What's your favorite book? Ooh. Effortless, ma effortless Mastery. Ooh, okay. Good one. Uh, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? <laughs> uh, Geely. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Um, if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be? Uh, I, mm, man. Ooh, why is this stumping me? What would I want to be? Uh, I guess 
I would want to work in the sanitation. Okay. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite drink? Uh, tequila soda lime. Ah, uh, okay. Right, let, let's dive into that tequila a little bit uh, more. Are you are you a, a reposado, an añejo, or a blanco, blanco kind of guy? I'm an añejo kind of guy. Don Julio, 1942. Oh, now you're talking my language. Now you're talking. Um, you could have a dinner party and invite any three living people, any three people in the whole wide world could come to that party. Who would you want to have there? I would want to have Jay-Z. I'd want to have Elon Musk. And I yeah, went in Marcellus. Okay, that sounds like a cool dinner. Yeah, yeah. that would work. Um, now you have three additional chairs at your table, and you could have any three people from history, any three people that are no longer with us, could join you. Mm -hmm. uh, Martin Luther King, uh, Sojourner Truth. And, ooh, John F. Kennedy. Ooh, okay. Deep. There's some deep conversation going on there. Yeah. All right. Uh, lacquer, plated, or raw? Raw. Mm, okay. What's your favorite quote? Hmm. Ooh, boy. I mean... <laughs> My favorite quote, I get, I mean, I don't think anybody would know it because it's probably, you know, it's, it's my grandfather and it's, 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 you know, he, I mean, basically he said to me, do what you have to do so you can do what you want to do. There you go. Uh, what is your greatest fear? greatest fear uh, rejection all right uh you could be granted one superpower what would it be read minds some some of those minds would be very short short reads there <laughs> um what aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most overrated overrated uh range and what aspect do you think is the most underrated sound okay. uh you can go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music what would it be fail early and fail often all right. And uh, while you're back there, you're going to give your younger self one piece of advice about life. Uh, always follow your passion. Okay. And final question for you, Rashawn Ross, what do you want your legacy to be? I just want my legacy to be one of fun gratitude 
you know, philanthropy and just the f- people would remember one thing about me is just to say that he always gave back. Hmm. Okay. Well, that is an awesome legacy to have. And, uh, you know, I know that every day you're working towards that. So, you know, it, it's, it, it's all that gratitude, man. So uh, yeah. that's what it's all about. Well, I want to thank you for, uh, hanging with me. Um, and now hopefully I didn't use up all your introvert coins for today. And uh, <laughs> uh, you can be stocked up, uh, ready to go for uh, for the next gig you got. So, um, you know, again, man, this has been a this has been a real pleasure getting to know you. And uh, you know, people can certainly check out all your your great work uh, with uh, currently with Dave Matthews Band. If they're going to be in the area, make sure that you uh, go check them out. Uh, you can uh, also dig into uh, Rashawn's very diverse library of works. Uh, I'm a big fan of the stuff you did with Lettuce and Soul Live. So uh, I, I listen to that at least once a week. So uh, yeah, some, that's some, some inspirational stuff. But uh, yeah, thanks for all that you do for the community, man. You're uh, you're certainly inspiration to all of us. And uh, if you are in the market for uh, you know, a new horn, definitely check out those, those new box, uh, you know, and uh, I think I, I, I'm hearing great things about them. So I'm looking forward to getting my hands on one of those as well. So right on, man. All right. So, uh, and thank you very much for joining us for this episode of The Hang. And uh, make sure you like and subscribe and and share and do all those great things so that we can keep coming back with more stuff. And if you have a, a request, a special topic, or a special guest, or a special question you'd like to ask, uh, please drop me a line. You can uh, find me at the Trumpet Gurus Hang.com and just uh, hook up with me there. So, as always, folks, peace and slide grease. We out. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signal. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group.